All right. Well, we're very excited to have Richard Ivers on the show, Portfolio Manager at Prime Value Asset Management. We've been trying to get Richard on the show for a while because uh, a couple of months ago, I saw an article about him in the Financial Review, which I talked about on the show. Uh, we, we won't go into the skipping, but we will talk about his <laughs> some of the comments that he made about his investing philosophy um, seem to mirror what we talk about, looking for good quality stocks. So uh, welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So um, Richard, uh, let's you know, uh, find out a little bit about you. Do you want to give us uh, your, your potted history before we get into your investing methodology? Tell us a bit about yourself. How, do you, how did you end up in the investing game? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I came out of, when I studied business at uni and um, I came from a family that didn't have a lot of financial backgrounds. So my dad was an engineer, my mum's a nurse. But I always found it very interesting, the finance game. And there was a, um, uh, a close relative of the family who worked in stockbroking. And he got me a, an initial role uh, at BBY as it was back then, which sort of had a tumultuous period in more recent years. But back then it was one of the biggest brokers in Australia. And I got a role helping analysts out. Um, and was sort of a secretary in a way, part-time secretary and part-time um, analyst helping the analysts. So that was back in the days when, when research went out on paper versus digital. And I started, so I worked with them um, for, for about a year and then they um, got me to be an analyst in my own right. And um, that was many years ago. And I've worked in the, um, the investment industry for about 18 years now. So 10 years in broking, covering stocks, so stock broking that is. Uh, BBY and then at Audemonette, uh, largely on small caps and about eight years in funds management. So that's the most recent eight years where I've been at three different funds. So currently at Prime Value um, Asset Management. Uh, before that, I was at a group called Contango and before that, I was at a group called River Capital. River Capital is part of the Smorgan family. Um, Contango uh, is, well, I joined them when we did a management buyout with James Packer uh, that, um, went well for a while and then things changed a bit towards the end um, it's been sort of quite widely publicized and then after Katango, i left and joined prime value where i've been for about three coming up three years started off as a secretary that pretty much sounds like my job secretary and part-time <laughs> analyst that's pretty much what i do uh so tell us tell us the prime value story they've been around quite a while i see from their website yeah so they were founded in 1998 so 22 years now and it was started as a family office. So it's, it's quite a wealthy family that invested their own money. And um, they decided to uh, invite or enable external money to, or, or, or external investors to join them in their, um, in their investing. And it's been growing and consistent since then. So in total, we manage about just over $1.5 billion of money. Uh, a large chunk of that is in property, so over a billion dollars in, in property. We manage about 200 million in equities. And there's a few different funds um, within the equities part of the business. So there's, there's my part, which is the small caps. I, I only invest in small cap stocks, so I manage about $70 million. And then there's a couple of other fund managers. So one guy does an all cap fund, so he invests in both large cap and small cap. And then there's a, a lady called Leanne who invests in equity income fund, an equity income fund. And so we're a little bit different in that um, we are a, a family office. So most other fund managers out there are either institutional funds, so they'll take on money for big, big funds, particularly the super funds. You know, a lot of the likes of the industry funds will give them big leaks of money to manage. Um, and they have a bit of a different focus because they're, they're particularly focused on Leading indexes, very much index focused. Um, uh, then there's others that are, you know, maybe have LICs, listed investment companies, or listed investment trusts, and ourselves, which is a, a family office. But by the family and myself, I'm not part of the family. So I have my own money invested in the fund, and the family has their money invested in the fund, and uh, which gives it a different approach because we are very much about making an investment return, not just beating an index. And that's um, that philosophy uh, filters all the way through to our benchmark. So most other small cap funds out there, pretty much every small cap fund out there has a benchmark, which is the small cap index, which is the small odds. Our index is 8% absolute, which is the, the long-term, the 40-year historical small odds return. 
though it's in line with the historical return, so it's considered fair. Um, but it, 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 what it does is incentivizes us to generate a positive investment return, not just beat an index. Uh, we believe fundamentally that the index is uh, not necessarily uh, an efficient or, or an appropriate way to invest. It's, it's filled with stocks which are have the composition of the largest businesses within that index are a business that we, we may not be interested in investing. And when, you, when you're benchmarked against an index, there's a uh, temptation to manage your risk by investing in those businesses, just to ensure that you don't underperform. Um, whereas we're not, we're not, we throw the index out, we're not interested in it, I don't even look at the composition of the index. I'm interested in beating um, or generating a return um, and beating that our, our benchmark of 8%. And we typically tar target 10 to 15% per annum. That's what we think about when we invest at a, at a stock level. So we're a little bit unusual in the way that we're structured and the way that we invest. Yeah, interesting. Hi, Richard. Uh, interesting that uh, you, you do that way. And you, I guess what you're saying is that's because you're part of a family office or your origins were in a family office. Can you maybe just, uh, for, for our listeners who may not know what some of these terms mean, can you just expand a bit on what a family office does and, and who, who they might employ and and what their objectives might be. Yeah, so a family office means that it's essentially a wealthy family that's set up their own, they have their own money. Um, and some family offices just purely invest their own money and don't allow external money to be invested. But the uh, prime value and a few others like River Capital, where I previously worked as well, they allow external investors to come in and invest alongside them. So effectively investing in the same investments the family is investing in and getting the same returns as the family, um, which is um, some people find appealing because they think, well, these people have got their own capital at risk and they've proven successful clearly over a long period of time. And so there's a lot more skin in the game with uh, a family office like ours. Um, and where the, where the portfolio manager myself is, is also um, personally invest a significant amount of my capital in the fund. Um, and it also, it also filters through. So I've worked um, in institutional fund managers and, um, and also, you know, I've had a lot of friends in the industry who've worked in them as well. And often the way when you are an institutional fund manager, um, you have to tick a lot of boxes. And typically they look at things like size of the teams. They have very big teams, um, which means when you sit around the table and you're trying to work out what to invest in, it's, it, can, it can take a committee type approach whereby, you know, there's, it's, it's sort of everybody tends to or needs to agree on an investment and it tends to move slowly. Sometimes when you, you fight to get an investment in the fund, there can be a reluctance to let that, fund, that investment go out. So even though the fundamentals might change, you might not want your stock to go out of the portfolio. So these sort of dynamics come into play, whereas with us, there's one key decision maker, which is the portfolio manager. And in the case of the fund, fund I run, it's, it's me. Um, and I'm 100% accountable for the performance of that fund. So, you know, like there's one throat to choke, as you might say. You know, if it's doing well, then, you know, it's, it's me. But if it's doing badly, then, it, then it's me as well. I'm accountable to that. And, you know, there's a significant amount, many, many millions of dollars of my, my bosses, if you like, um, money invested in, in the fund that I manage. So he's watching that performance quite closely and wants to understand what's going on. And you have that real skin in the game. It also means that you can take a longer term view. So when you're an institutional fund, you can be very much focused on the quarterly performance. You're answer answerable to um, the people who have given you that, that mandate to, to manage the money. And they very much look at short-term performance and there can be a tendency to manage the fund that way as well. Whereas when you're, um, when you're a family office or a fund like ours, we very much look out, we can look longer and we can wear some volatility in the short term if you can understand why we're underperforming in the short term. So the market, particularly in small caps or invest, can go through periods where it becomes irrationally exuberant in some areas. And if you're benchmarked against the index or you're managing institutional money, you can be tempted to chase that, that index and keep up with it and take risks that you wouldn't otherwise if it was your own money. 
So um, it has a different approach. We like we we sometimes, in fact, the, the, the periods where we've historically tended to underperform has been when the market's really flying, and you know there's a lot of, of risk um, being taken on. Like it was uh, there's a period early in 2019 where we underperformed. And that, you know, it's that period, but then it turns very sharply. I mean, COVID's shown that as well, right? Things turn really quickly. So when you've got that in your portfolio, it's very, you get, you can get caught out. And so we're not tempted to take that risk and we, and we don't get caught out when things turn, turn quickly like they, they can. So being held to an absolute number rather than an index, does that mean that if you happen to make, say, 15% nine months into the year, you'd shut up shop for the last three or, or you keep the... <laughs> Or, or, or do you wind back a bit, or do you sort of wind back to a nine iron rather than taking your driver on the next position? Does that a, does that have a different dynamic to it compared to an, a, a large institutional fund who is trying to outperform the index? No, no, it doesn't. We we very much just invest, and we don't we don't worry about you know if we're doing well or not. Um, we, we're focused on the investments and how we're going. Um, so it's not about whether we're how much we are above the benchmark or not. It's really about delivering the long-term returns, particularly in a fund like mine as well. So it's not it's not in my it's not even if I wanted to it's not it's not I'm not incentivized to do that. So um, you know the fund I said as I said earlier we've I managed about seventy million. It's sort of doubling every six months at the moment. It's it's growing very quickly, um, but we're very much at the early stages. So we're gonna we're gonna limit capacity to around three hundred million. Um, so most most competitors in our space, you know, they, their their capacity is about five hundred million or a billion. So we're limiting it much lower, and we're in the growth phase. And um, you know, it's not. I need to keep keep delivering good performance. And if I don't deliver good performance, then the money will flow out again. Um, mm. And we definitely won't won't get to that three hundred million capacity that we're that we hope to to get to. Um, and you know, I'll be managing this for the next 10, 15 years at least, depending on how I. How I hold up um, physically and mentally and everything, so and how my performance goes. So um, there's not absolutely not a temptation to do that. It's very much focused on delivering good returns. And, and my boss, with it, with with his, with his, he wouldn't be. He's more focused on getting a return on his capital in the fund than than you know the performance fees that we generate. Speaking of fees, so if you're using the sort of uh, shared infrastructure of a family office and you're not out there chasing mandates from large institutions is that reflected in your fees would they be how comparable are they compared to an, an institutional managed fund yeah so we would charge um we would charge more for a retail client so we charge 1.25 percent uh, management fee uh, and then we charge a performance fee of 20 percent above the benchmark of eight percent mm-hmm. um now those fees are very standard within small caps. The difference is that our benchmark is um, is uh, you know eight percent absolute absolute as opposed to an index. If you were an institutional fund manager and say you were your client was Australian Super, the largest fund manager or super fund in Australia, then they might give us you know say they probably wouldn't give us less than two or three hundred million. It's just a rounding area for them. I think they've got about one hundred and fifty billion. So when you're giving someone two or three hundred million dollars, then obviously you get a big discount on the fees. Mm. So you know you might so a small cap fund might charge say seventy or eighty basis points, a point seven or point eight percent, as opposed to one point two five percent like we do. Mm. Um, so yeah, we but but in terms of other other like many other funds take both institutional money and retail money, so manage for both. Um, and and they'll typically the fees will be similar to ours, about one point two five or thereabouts. Some up to one point five. I know someone charges two, um, but it's it's when you consider to the returns that have been generated. So in the time I've been gener- working, I've been managing the funds um, over the last sort of two and a half, coming up three years. So the return has been about fifteen percent per annum, versus the index of plus two over that time. So you know, point two or point three is really not a huge amount in the context of the um, of the return. So, yeah. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Maybe can you take us through your process on on how you invest? I noticed in in reading some of the uh, the the bio on yourself, you talked about having lots of company meetings uh, during mm. a year. How how does actually meeting face to face with management add value to your investment process? Yeah, that's. I, I, that's a core and fundamental part of our, my process. 
So I meet on average, or pre-COVID, I was meeting two a day on average, so 500 a year. Uh, with COVID, that's gone up a lot. So it's probably more like, more like four, I would say. Um, I, don't, I haven't actually gone back and looked at the numbers in the last six months, I've been so flat out. So, um, and that's fundamental. I mean, there's, there's around 200 or 2,000 stocks in the small cap space. There's about sort of 400 or so, 250, 400 that are, I would consider in the space where I would invest. So we, I don't invest in resources companies. Um, I don't typically invest in companies that are losing money. Um, and I very much have a quality, quality bias. So we strip out a lot of companies. Um, but it's really about going and meeting the companies. And I think it's much more important in the small cap space than it is in the large cap space, and the top 100 being the large caps. So, you know, management are, are very, very important in small caps and you need to sit down and talk to them and understand how they're thinking, um, what their aims and goals are, um, to really understand how that business is going to perform. And you also, I mean, I spend a lot of time just trying to get, up, get to understand the business. So I don't think um, you can do that that well if you don't sit and talk to the, the, the company. Um, and understand, you know, are they able to get pricing through? What are the risks in the business? Um, you know, how are the, uh, what sort of, what are the largest customer contracts they might have? When are those con contracts due to be renewed? All these sort of things. You know, you get into the, the nitty gritty of the accounting of the business as well, which you really need to, um, I think, talk to the management to understand. Um, it's also enables you to triangulate the business. So a big part of what we do is we also talk to the competitors of the business. They're the ones who give you the dirt. So when you talk mm -hmm. to a company, typically they tell you all the positives and mm -hmm. all the, the great things about it. Uh, and it's very hard to often um, get, a, get to feel where the negatives and the risks are. But when you go and talk to the competitors, the first thing they'll typically do is they'll tell you the risks and the issues and the weaknesses in the business that you're thinking of investing in. And we're, we're very lucky because a lot of the businesses that are listed, they have com competitors who are also listed. So we have the um, ability to go and talk to their competitors. Uh, so you, to get a full understanding of the business and often their customers are listed too or their suppliers. So you can get a full, uh, full sort of circular understanding of, of the business, uh, which is where the real value is added, we think. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I have a different point of view. I've certainly done a little bit of that and worked in businesses, but um, I particularly would find it hard going out and talking to hundreds of businesses. And I think even if I could, I would find it hard to do a deep dive into enough industries to, to get value from that. I'd, I'd probably do it in one or two industries, but not across the whole breadth of industries. And I know you said before you don't go into all industries. So uh, you know, you're obviously playing to your strengths there. Um, can you give us some examples where meeting with management has stopped you from investing in something or the reverse has made you invest in something you weren't going to invest in before? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, um, I mean, I would say just in terms of, and, and in terms of the meetings too, I would say that I agree with you, Tony, about, you know, it's hard to do that. and, and but. I guess I've been doing it for 18 years and you build up that, that depth, mm. you know, and you kind of, you, 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 you build up the knowledge of how the business operates and you build up the knowledge of um, what the management are like, how much they, um, they gild the lily or not. Mm. <laughs> and so you can, the way they talk, you get an understanding and you can sort of either, like typically the interesting thing too is you talk to the CEO and they're typically bullish. Often they've come up through the sales part of the business. Mm -hmm. Talk to the CFO and they're often conservative. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the opposite. And often the truth is somewhere in the middle. I like to talk to two of them separately and, and, um, and, and try to get line managers as well and then work out whether they're all saying the same thing or what's different. But we all work differently. Um, in terms of um, businesses where, um, where um, they've... There, I mean, just about all my ideas come through through meeting companies. I mean, that's that's essentially what I do, and how I mean, this financials. My background is in I, when I was at uni, I did did accounting, um, and uh, I skipped out earlier. I didn't actually work in. Uh, I did. I did work in some, you know, in some um, finance and strategy roles outside of 
um, the investment industry. So that that financial stuff as well is 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 really important. So you know, which you can assess externally, things like return on equity, return on invested capital, all those sort of things. You know, return on incremental investment, which is really important. Um, I'm just trying to think. So just bear with me. Um, so one of the, I'll give you an example. One business that I like at the moment, which we've just invested in recently, which is a business called SG Fleet. Mm-hmm. That's a business that I've followed for a long, long period of time. Um, it is a business that provides uh, vehicle leasing to largely the corporates and government. So you know they'll lease a car from SG Fleet, um, and SG Fleet will make make uh, you know income along the, the you know the three the typically the three year lease term. And then the, the car will be handed back at the end, and they'll make a SG Fleet will either make a loss or a or, or a gain when they sell that that vehicle. So SG Fleet has very much um, it had a tough period through through COVID. So you know the corporate stops um, uh, taking on new new cars because they didn't know the outlook. And when you talk to the management and understand how they were going recently back in August, their result, and this was all public too, so they do a, a you know, public conference call. They talked about the pipeline of the business and how that had changed. So through COVID, you know, the pipeline had completely shrunk. The, the amount of new business had just almost evaporated. And in the space of a few months, it had completely changed, whereby Australia had got on top of the, the virus um, and uh, you know, we felt like we actually had ability to deal with it and, and go back to some sort of normal life then their opportunity to win new customers had, had changed significantly. And again, this is a business that I've followed for a long time, so I know what management are like, and they're, they're, they're pretty straight, straight down the line. Uh, so that, that, that changed my perception of that business in a positive way. Um, and, and the stock was an all-time low. Um, it was, tr- in terms of share price, the valuation multiple was an all-time low as well. It was trading on a PE of around about uh, eight times, typically trades on sort of mid-teens type PE. So you had those all sort of things lining, all those sort of things lining up. Um, that was one which um, which really really changed you know, my, my view on it view on it recently. Um, I'm just trying to think of one where it changed me to to sell. Sometimes it's things like where you have, might have a major contract coming up, and we're very much around that capital preservation focus, so not losing money. Um, which I should have mentioned earlier, but that's a big part of being a family office as well. You, you know, often the attitude of wealthy people is that, you know, I've got enough money, more money than I can ever um, spend. Just don't lose me money. That's mm. sort of the key focus, um, often with very, very wealthy people, which, which permeates through our philosophy and through that, that absolute benchmark as well. And so with businesses that may have like a big contract coming up or something like that where it's a big risk factor, we might reduce the weighting of the, of the stock um, just to manage that, that downside risk. So that's perhaps an example of that. Mm. Yeah, kind of the reverse of buy the rumour, sell the fact, isn't it? If something's coming up, you don't want to be exposed to it, but you, can, you may have to forgo some profit, but you also avoid a loss, don't you, if, it, if the contract doesn't come off. Yeah, good point. Uh, so take me. So so is meeting companies the be all and end all of your process, or do you also are there other parts to the process, like valuation, for example? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's just a part. It's where our my ideas come from. Our mm-hmm. ideas come from largely, but it's just part of the process. So um, we have quite a a lengthy and in depth process, which I probably won't bore you with all the details with today, but. Um, we, we, we go through the process of invest, we forecast the earnings of businesses um, out three to five years. Um, beyond that, it becomes a little bit difficult to be accurate. I think particularly in the current economy where you know, there's disruption happening and you know, the economy is evolving and changing. And then we, we put um, a, what we think is a reasonable valuation multiple on those earnings. So um, that might be like a, like a, we typically look at EBIT multiples, so that might be an EBIT multiple of, of you know, so 10 or 15 times earnings as a rough figure. So when I say EBIT, I'm talking about earnings before interest and tax. We could use a PE just to, which is more broadly known, a similar sort of, of thing. And then you discount it back. So you look at um, what that value would be and, and, um, and what the dividend stream would be over that, that three-year period, for example, 
And then what's the internal rate of return or what's the, the investment gain I'm going to get over that three-year period, um, assuming my assumptions are right. And then if that's in that 10 to 15% return requirement, then we will typically invest. Now, that's a simplified way of looking at it because we also look at the risk. So if a business um, uh, is like all, all, all forecasts require some assumptions and some uh, have a higher level of risk than others. If we have a business that we are, have a high level of certainty in, typically a business that is uh, not very exposed to the economic cycle and has high barriers to entry, so has good sustainable earnings through the cycle, then there's a relatively low level of risk in those forecasts and we would have we much more likely to invest and put a much bigger weighting in the portfolio for that business as well. So some other investors think about weightings in terms of what's the biggest return I can get. We don't think about it like that. We think about what's the risk of that return that we're going to generate. And um, it's sort of like a tortoise and the hare approach, right? We're, we're the sort of, dare I say, we're the tortoise type approach. We're trying to get good, consistent returns, not hit it out of the park and take big risks. So, now, buy, not, buy now, pay later is a space now that's really hot and everybody seems, a lot of others seem to love it. I don't, I, I don't have a single holding it. I've never had an investment in the space. Now, I've missed some upside, clearly. Afterpay's been an absolutely cracking business. But that's just not the way we approach it and that's not the way we invest. We're just looking for good, consistent returns over time. Um, you, don't, you don't get a phone call from the patriarch of the family office saying, hey, how come we don't have any afterpay in our portfolio? <laughs> I do get questions. I do get, I do get regular <laughs> questions, but he understands that as well. So he's very much, um, he agrees with, and accepts that approach. And that's why I joined. That was very much my philosophy of investing. And he, he employed me on that basis. Mm. Um, so we miss out. We miss out on some of the good ones, but, you know, we, we, we also miss the errors. You know, mm. things turn quickly. And, you know, in small caps, like, you think back, like, I remember a couple of years ago, it was, was all about medicinal cannabis and these stocks were absolutely flying and it was all it was largely um a concept or a promise and then early last year it was uh you know really speculative tech so you know tech tech or software businesses can be great businesses but these are ones that were a long way from earning a profit and you know conceptual type businesses they Mm. were flying and it seems like this year it's buy now pay later Mm. now they could keep going i don't know when it's going to turn but Afterpay is a great business, but there's a lot of tier two and tier three players, and you kind of look out and you think, I, I just, I can't, I can't get anywhere near the valuation of these businesses, and mm. it's, I think it's going to turn. I don't know when, but I, I suspect it is going to turn at some point. No, I agree. I think, I think they're one regulation away from turning is is how I look at it. Mm. But, but what you're describing is is a very Buffett Munger approach, isn't it? It's a an emphasis on the predictability of earnings rather than necessarily the the upside of the earnings. It's it's buying a company with a bond-like quality, as uh, as someone once said. It was either Buffett or Munger, but that's what that's, that's what you're doing basically, which is which is kind of value investing. I know you don't call it that; you call it GARP, I think, from memory, or something similar. So maybe we should call that this episode "The World According to GARP," Cameron, when we put it out on the podcast. But maybe you can explain what GARP is for us. Thanks. Yeah. So um, it's growth at a reasonable price. So what we're really just trying to say is that we're trying to buy businesses that are growing, but that we do have very much a valuation overlay on it. So, um, you know, when we're not just, we're not going to buy, like, oh, like we spoke about Afterpay is an example of a business that you're just going to say, okay, this thing's going to grow and I'm just going to look out maybe 10 years or 15 years and say, okay, the valuation stacks up, stacks up on that really long-term basis. We don't look out, as I said earlier, we look out more three to five years. And so we're trying to buy businesses that are growing, and but we actually we are focused on valuation. And we are we're actually a, strictly speaking, we have a gut bias. We're, we're we're sort of a style agnostic. If you want to be specific and sure that I'm consistent in the way I communicate with with your listeners as well as as the way we invest, we do have some value and sort of some growth, but we but we are very much um, a gut sort of buyer. So, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting difference to, to a value investor. We're quality at value, I guess, is the name of our podcast. Let me run some names through uh, past you, which are at the top of our value list, and just get your take on them for our listeners. So, 
uh, Eclipse ECX, and that's probably a competitor of SG Fleet you were talking about before. What, what's your take on a stock like Eclipse? Yeah, we actually own a little bit of Eclipse as well. So we own mm-hmm. both of them in the space. And I think it, it's interesting in that space now. So like Eclipse are about to report the result tomorrow, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So um, they are very, they've very much been a turnaround. So the old management went and they did, and did a, lot of, a lot of acquisitions. They didn't really play out. The new management's come in. There's a guy who's ex-UBS investment banker, actually. He diversified a lot of assets, cleaned it up and brought it back to its core. Um, like I mentioned earlier with SG Fleet, the key driver of this business is, um, in, in their fleet business, is, is essentially, um, you know, the, the, the customer contracts. So, you know, the, the, the earnings they get on, the, the, the revenue stream of those vehicles over the term of the lease, which is very much improving. And then the other, the, the other big swing factor is, is the divestment of the vehicle at the end of the lease term, which is called the residual value. And they take a profit or loss on the sale of that used car, if you like, after the three or three or four year old car at the end. And that can move earnings around. I remember 20 years ago or so, some of these businesses blew up on the back of used car prices getting smashed. Mm. Now, where we are right now, used car prices are absolutely booming. So people, uh, new car sales have been weak. They're starting to improve. There hasn't been um, a lot of new cars coming into the, the car park, as you might say, over the last few years. And people don't want to catch public transport and they want to holiday locally. In fact, many times they're actually restricted to holidaying locally. So they need additional car. There's more demand and there's been less supply of cars, which means used car, used car prices are up 20 or 30% at the moment. So you've got this big tailwind coming through, which is... I think is starting to people are starting to understand, but that's a real key earnings driver for both Eclipse and SG Fleet, which should drive earnings uh, pretty strongly over the next couple of years. In both cases, their valuations are cheap, which is probably why it's coming up on your screen mm. as well. And the other part that's likely to happen as well, and this is where you get a feel for you know talking to the, to the participants in the industry, is that there's been a very uh, competitive space for many, many years. There's 10 big players in the space, one of the few industries in Australia where you have so many players, and they all accept that the industry needs to consolidate. It's too competitive, it's too many players, which means that M&A is likely, um, and it has, it, it almost happened um, uh, uh, a year or two ago, um, um, and I think it's likely, um, there's been a few bits in the industry a, few, you know, a year or two ago, and I think it's likely there will be M&A in the space, and Eclipse has said publicly that they are a willing seller. Mm. So Eclipse is a prime ta- target for a takeover um, over the next year or two. Um, now, it has to be at the right price, and, you know, there has to be a bidder, so it's, it's not certain, but it's 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 definitely a rational thing to happen and they would be um a rational business to be to be taken out yeah and the deal fell over last year and and it's my experience the the value end of the market is the player taken out and i, I agree with you on eclipse uh and and m a activity let me run another one by you michael hill jewelers is that someone that you uh you have met and know I have, yeah. I've uh, met them a few times. Yeah, it's an interesting business. It's a retailer, as we probably all know, with Michael Hill, so it's in the jewellery space. It's because they're jewellery, the interesting thing about it, when you, you look at the balance sheet and it's got a huge amount of, of inventory and you wonder why, and of course it's diamonds and gold and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's, it's very much screening cheaply at the moment. I think it's on a P of around about six times um, this year's earnings. Um, it's a business that about 70% of its earnings come in the second quarter. So this quarter at the moment, so mm. obviously for gift, for gift giving for Christmas. So it's very much dependent on how this next couple of months plays out. Um, so you do have that, that seasonality or risk to it, if you like. And it's also a business that's relatively mature. So with retailers, the, the way that you can, you can generate very, very high investment returns is if you've got a good, a good store concept that's rolling out more stores. So, you know, the concept, it's a bit like copy-paste, 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 mm. uh, profit centres. Um, whereas in, in Michael Hill's um, uh, instance, it's actually a relatively mature, so they don't have a big store rollout, which means you're really more dependent on the sales growth at the store level uh, or the profit, profit growth at the store level, which makes it a bit harder to grow and also, also means the valuation multiple tends to be um, restricted because of the, it doesn't have that growth attached to it. 
So when you're buying it at these levels, you're really um, hoping or expecting a, um, a turnaround in profit or something that's going to drive it more. So, you know, there might be you know, a big a big level of engagements and weddings, for example, that could, could happen in the, you know, post-COVID. That could provide a big uplift. Um, so it's kind of one that it's interesting. It's, it's definitely interesting because it's cheap, but it's not, it's a business that you kind of, you'll, you'll, you'll get a, a lift at, at a certain point because it doesn't have that rollout where you get the earnings growth of a long period of time. It's possible also that it might then, you know, go out of favour a bit. So it's sort of a, a business where you get sort of that wave type pattern as, mm-hmm. as opposed to a, a consistent growth pattern. I also, being an ex-retailer, I also know that retailers love growth and oftentimes a company in this space, if it's, if it's not rolling out stores, it's got an eye on an acquisition somewhere to get a big store number increase quickly. So um, I, I don't know if that's the case for Michael Hill Jewelers. It might be different because it's Michael Hill might be like your family patriarch looking after his money rather than trying to necessarily grow it dramatically. But, but uh, that's always the, I guess, the other side of the coin you don't know about is what they've got planned in terms of acquisitions or bolt-ons to, to increase that store footprint. Yeah, and a great balance sheet too, net cash balance yeah. sheet. So they're well positioned, yeah. And there was a new guy who came in and managed it, ex- guy who's ex, I can't remember his name, is ex-City Sheep. Um, so he's running it, so mm. he's very much got a growth mandate and to get this business mm. firing again, so. Yeah, watch this space, I think, with Michael Hill. And yeah. what about the reject shop? That's probably the last one I'll run by you. Another retailer. Yeah, I've got a long history with the region shop. I used to cover it when I was an analyst at Augmentet. So it's um, a business that we used to back in those days. Um, this would have been um, sort of late, sort of naughty. So 2008, 2000, sorry, sort of two, sorry, just pre-GFC 2006, 2007, 2008. It was absolutely flying. And it's, it's gone through a few troubles. And now they've had a new management team that's come in beginning of January. And it's got a lot of things in place whereby it could do really well, but it, but it is a turnaround. So turnarounds are inherently a little bit risky because mm-hmm. um, they've got to get the, the business back on track. And it takes a little bit of time as well because one of the issues with, with the region shop is the merchandising, so the stock um, in the stores. So as we all know, you know, it's a, a place where you go in and there's a huge variety of, of, of products that you can purchase from it, and they lost their way a little bit with that. And it takes around um, nine months to get to, to turn that around, even even longer. So they typically order out six to nine months mm-hmm. of the stock before it actually comes and gets into the store because they're importing it. Then you've got to remove your old inventory. So it's a bit of a, a big ship to turn around and get the business on the right track. So it takes a little bit of time to get to know how they're performing. But um, they've certainly got the management that, that are in there now, their ex Kmart and Target. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a tick. That's a, definitely a, a positive. Kmart's been a fantastic retailer over the last few years and taken a similar approach. The way that they are changing um, the reject shop is very much about simplification. So reducing the number of um, products or SKUs they have in the store, um, um, getting the, 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 um, the, this, this, the products per store similar across most of the different stores, refreshing the store look and feel. Uh, reducing the number of suppliers so they get better terms with those suppliers. So all those things sound really good. They sound positive. What you what you don't know is how the consumers are going to respond to it. And there's, so there's, there's just a, there's a little bit of hesitation with, with what I'm saying, not because there's anything wrong, but just because you sort of need to see it in the numbers to really know whether it's taking shape. Certainly from an investment perspective and, and putting the numbers together, it can you can definitely get a big return. So you know, you could expect sort of sales around about eight hundred million dollars or so, and they're they're targeting a five percent EBITDA margin, so forty million dollars EBITDA. And you could easily put that on ten times easily if it's growing and the, and the turnaround gathers pace. You could trade on a higher multiple than that. Than that, but let's just assume it's on ten times. They've got close to a hundred million of, of cash as well. So you've got sort of four hundred million dollars of the business, and then hundred million dollars of cash gets you to five hundred million dollars valuation of the equity which is about a $13 share price, which is almost mm. double where it is now. So mm. you can definitely see the upside. There's no doubt about that. It's just, it's a, it's a, it just needs to continue to deliver. And when, I think if it does deliver, it'll move very quickly, this stock. But it has had a couple of hiccups along the way. It mm. had had a few um, turnarounds, if you like, that didn't, didn't work out. So there's a little bit of trepidation out there. But it's, it's a very interesting one. Because um, when, when earnings turn in this business, they turn quickly. 
there's a lot of operating leverage. Uh, you know, a lot of operating leverage, fixed cost cover, which is a, a, a metric you use for, um, for retailers, which is basically the earnings, the, 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 its coverage of fixed costs being interest and rent, because mm -hmm. you know, there's a big rental cost for, for, for retailers and how much of its earnings cover that. So you, so you know, the big ones are like the Woolies and the, and the Coles can be up to three times coverage. Uh, uh, reject shop is more like sort of one and a half times, which means there's a lot of operating leverage. So when things are going bad, they kind of you, you can go down very quickly, but when they're going well, they go up, go up mm. quickly as well. So they can get the top line growing, sales growing. This you know the earnings will really accelerate in this business, and as I've outlined, the valuation um, can can really accelerate with it. Mm. Yeah, good. Well, we'll pencil in $13 for that one then. Patrick. <laughs> hey, listen, I've got one more question before I throw back to Cameron. Uh, and this is one we've asked of other fund managers. What's your take on the argument that value investing is dead? Is it dead? No, it's not dead. <laughs> um, absolutely not dead. And you know, I sometimes, I struggle a bit. I've worked this industry a long, long time. And, and you ask people what value is and there's different views on it. You know, like, I think there's a broad perception out there that value is actually beaten down, structurally challenged, cheap stocks. Mm. That's not actually true. I think what's true, and I think what you outlined earlier, Tony, is that you're buying buying businesses that are uh, below their intrinsic value, or you know you're buying them on a on a, on a you know, good quality businesses um, like the Charlie Munger and, and Buffett approach. You're just buying them on the on a value below what they're worth, and that's how I think about it. If if and, and that's definitely not. That is the, the, the tried and trusted way of making, of, of making good investment returns. Where if you're thinking about it in terms of buying cheap stocks that are structurally challenged, then um, that's not dead either. But the time in the sun is probably shorter than it was in the past because the world is changing and technology is having a big impact. And businesses that are structurally challenged, they can it can be a lot tougher for them to, mm. to turn around and, and improve their business. They've got to make big decisions and stocks that are on low PEs, you need to be careful about because of that. That can be value traps. Um, and it just can be that perhaps the structural change is not quite evident to you yet when you're buying it. So you just need to be a little bit careful about low PE type businesses. That's the only thing I'd say, but definitely value investing is not, not dead. Mm. Absolutely not. Well, thank you. Thanks for that, uh, Richard. That was a great discussion. Cam, I'm going to throw over to you if you've got any questions. Thanks. Yeah, a couple of softballs, Richard. But one thing I want, did want to call back to something you said at the beginning was you don't invest in resources stocks. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and why is that? Is that just a general philosophical position of the firm? Um, no, it's not. So my colleagues who ran, manage the other funds, they invest in resources businesses. Um, I, that's not my strength. So I don't have a resources background. Um, and so I definitely play to my strengths. Uh, and secondly, it also comes down to the philosophy. So I could try and like learn resources and get to understand them. But the, the philosophy is trying to invest in businesses where there's a predictability to the earnings and clear earnings drivers. With resources companies, you know, one of the biggest drivers is, of course, the commodity price. And the commodity price is very, very hard to predict, particularly if you're looking out three to five years. It's very, very, very hard. So it doesn't really fit into that style of investing, or our, our, our style of investing either. Um, my colleagues who invest, they typically invest in the larger ones, so the BHPs and the Rios. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm small caps, which means I'm not, I, I can't invest. My mandate doesn't allow me to invest in the top 100. And so at my end of the, of the spectrum, it tends to be a high risk resource. So yeah, it doesn't, doesn't fit our philosophy and our, or our strength. Right. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Okay. Well, I was just going to uh, ask you a couple of uh, recommend, recommendations that you might be able to give our audience. Uh, a book. Is there a book that uh, you like recommending in terms of uh, investing? I think, well, there's the old um, trustees like The Intelligent Investor, which is, you know, kind of one of the Bibles of investing, but it's hard, heavy going. Um, I think um, um, The Snowball, which is, which is a book on, um, on Buffett, I think is a really good book. Um, it, it shows some of his warts as well. It's not a, just a pure, um, a, a, you know, pure puff piece on him. And it really gives insight into the way he thinks. 
one of the other things I like doing is in is reading um, you know monthly updates from fund managers, other fund managers, you know, um, particularly like global investors as well, um, outside, which gives you a perspective. Um, and most fund managers, you can just go to their website and you get their monthly update. Like ours is free. You can see, you know, what our largest holdings are and what we're thinking about in the market at any time. And there's a lot of good fund managers out there and which, which are giving away information and insights for free. Um, so, um, you know, even if, you know, if, if it's a fund that you're interested in or you look at the, you know, who are the best performing funds um, over a you know, prolonged period, I wouldn't just look at, you know, good performing funds over a short period, but, um, you know, have a look at the website and read what they're, um, what they're saying. You can learn a lot. What about outside of investing? What are you, uh, are you reading anything good recently you can recommend? <laughs> um... I'm reading finance books outside of <laughs> How boring is that? That's terrible. Yeah, it's um, pretty boring. Yeah, that is. I read books to my son. I've got a seven-year-old son, so uh, every night I read. I read to him, which is uh, a bit more interesting. So we're reading Doctor Zeus at the moment. <laughs> not investing books. You're not reading uh, Buffett biographies to him. Yeah? No, no, that's it. No, no. no I've, uh, I've taken some pocket money and put it in the fund. I'm trying to get him interested, but it, he's more interested in spending it on toys. So. <laughs> I've got a I've got a six year old and um, he is the only investor in the QAV fund at the moment. Uh, he gets paid a dollar a day uh, interest on his investment in the fund, so uh, he does very well. Music, got any music recommendations? What are you listening to that's good? I actually have signed up with COVID in particular. You know, been stuck at home and not able to go out. More time listening, and um, I'm a little bit. Well, I like I like Rufus. I mean, I'm 47 years old, but this is a younger, I like, like Rufus, I think they're, they're good. I've been listening to a bit of them. Tom York has done some good, um, some good solo stuff mm-hmm. um, uh, recently. And then, and then I, you know, a lot of stuff that um, um, I, I sort of, you know, the older stuff like the Stones and uh, that sort of stuff, Cream and all that as well, for what it's worth. The stuff that <laughs> old guys like us with grey hair listen to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, quality stuff. Quality <laughs> stuff, yeah. Uh, what about uh, podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? Yours is, I actually did listen to yours on the weekend to get a bit of background and information. Um, and so that was good. Um, Livewire is an interesting one. Um, they actually, um, you know, you can listen to uh, you know, a lot of fund managers. I, I've just done an interview with them in the last week and we'll be going on with them. So that's. That's uh, they do some good stuff. And you, again, you can listen to uh, in-depth interviews with fund managers, um, uh, and which gives you some some good understanding and how they invest. And then another one that I've listened to recently too is Build It and They'll Come, um, which has been good. I have an investment in Redbubble, and that's how I came to come across it. Um, they interviewed Martin Hoskin and talked about a lot about you know his experience in, um, in building that business up to be you know, it's a billion dollar business now, homegrown global marketplace out of Melbourne here, mm. um, which and they talk a lot to entrepreneurs and some investors too, which which is quite good. What about film, TV recommendations? What's good? What are you watching lately? Yeah, we're not allowed to the cinemas here in Melbourne. I think we might actually as of last night. But I've been watching yeah. on Netflix. There's a, there's a great show at the moment called the um, The Queen's Gambit, which is about a female chess player, which I thought was fantastic. I watched that last week, and I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant show. Yeah, I've, I've got that in my uh, to watch queue. I've heard good things about it. I'm a chess player. Are you a chess player? Um, I'm. Uh, I'm actually not very good. My wife is actually a very good player, and uh, she she whips me whenever I play her. So I don't play her that often. I uh, I can't get my wife to watch anything that's chess related, so I'm ho- I showed her the trailer for that. I'm like, look, you know, young girl like with big anime eyes, you would like that. Uh, the chess thing, I oh, don't worry about that. I'm sure that's a minor uh, storyline. Going to try and trick her into watching it. Yeah. Um, okay, so just to wrap up, so uh, in terms of outside investors, if any of our listeners. Uh, are interested in checking out uh, Prime? Is there a, a, a process or is there a certain kind of investor that should take a look at your stuff? Give it, give us the pitch. Yeah, so we, I mean, we've got a website, so um, which is which is Prime Value, um, um, www.primevalue.com.au. Um, and my name is Richard Ivers, I-V-E-R-S, and I run the Emerging Opportunities Fund at Prime Value. So that's my fund. There's a lot of information there. There's also an ability to send an inquiry through. 
if you're interested in doing that, do that. It's definitely monitored. Like it doesn't go into a, you know, it's a file that's not answered. It gets answered very promptly. There's a lot of information on our um, funds on there as well. Um, you know, a lot, all the performance history. Um, there's the you know recent articles that we've we've um, we've done, um, and you can also get in contact. And and if you send an inquiry through to that that uh, through the website, then you'll, you'll come to a business development guy. He'll talk the guy called Andrew. Typically, he'll talk to you about about the fund and I can we'll typically talk to investors as well because we, we're trying to build, we're building a business and we're investing for the long term and we want investors to understand and know what they're investing in, um, not to come in and in some way be disappointed. And so we are a little bit different in that way as well. We're a boutique whereby we are accessible. Um, so uh, definitely encourage people to have a look um, if it suits them. Um, it's a business, you know, the fund has, as I said, has generated a return of around 15% per annum in the time I've been managing over the last two and a half years. Over that period as well, the volatility has been lower than the index. So over, I've generated a return of 15% versus an index return of 2%, but the volatility, which is generally considered a way of measuring risk, is 20% below the index over that time. So higher, higher return, lower risk. It's a long only fund, not a short, so we don't short or manage risk that way. So, um, yeah, have a, have a look. And if you're interested, um, make an inquiry. I see that uh, it was ranked the number one small cap fund in Australia by Mercer for performance over the 12 months to the 30th of June 2020. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I was... hope, you, hope you got a bonus. <laughs> doesn't work that way. <laughs> I have to perform. It's all about investment return. <laughs> That's how it works with us. So, um, yeah. It's all, all about right. investment return. Well, thanks again for uh, taking time out to come on and um, talk us through some of that stuff, Richard. That was great. We appreciate it. No, no problems. Thank you for having me. Good. Thanks, Richard. See you. Yeah, Tony. See you, Cameron. Cheers.